0: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got off. I spoke to Chuck Prophet from his home in San Francisco, where he's locked down, unable even to go to his office. There in San Francisco. But he's in good spirits, and he's still feeling somewhat creative, and it was great to talk to him. One of the hardest things about the global pandemic for me personally is is that I miss seeing and talking to other musicians and other artists and getting to do these conversations for Wheels Off has been one of the main ways that I've felt a little more normal. So talking to Chuck was like talking to an old friend. Well, it was, I guess it was literally talking to an old friend. And our conversation gets pretty relaxed. He reached out to me after we recorded this, concerned that some of the jokes he made and some of the songs he referenced specifically, a Wayne Wainwright song that you'll hear in the interview, um might come across as being too flip, too like casual in terms of the way he was referencing, you know, kind of tricky subject matter. This happens a lot in bands and in music and in green rooms. My band old 97s used to joke that we have a karma filter on our on our old white van that we toured around in because you know, musicians, especially if it's just a bunch of dudes, and I don't mean to make it gender because my drummer, Angela, can, you know, keep up with all of the grossest dudes. But we, musicians, tend to be like 14-year-olds. So sometimes the jokes can get pretty crass, and uh, it's a Peter Pan syndrome kind of thing. Anyway, Chuck was worried that people might take it out of context. I think that think that he was being serious. I I can't speak for him, but I know Chuck Prophet is a good dude. He has spent his life since his first band Green on Red in the 1980s and his career as a songwriter and an artist and doing all sorts of just interesting, thoughtful stuff. He has spent his life fighting the good fight, you know, being super aware of the underdog and the downtrodden and Anyway, just uh, remember as you listen to this that you're a fly on the wall listening to some some old rock and rollers laugh about stuff. (laughs) So (laughs) enjoy this conversation. I'm really glad that I got him onto wheels off because I've always admired his talent, his work ethic, and his inspiration. Here is Chuck Prophet.
1: Chuck Prophet, welcome to Wheels Off. Thank you, Red. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it's great to see you again, albeit virtually. Uh, are you, you're at home, right, San Francisco?
1: Yeah, I'm in San Francisco, very much uh, in the heart of the heart of all of it. And uh, yeah, just in my bunker here. So weird. Um, well, let uh, start where I like to start. What creative project
0: are you working on at the moment, and how does it light you up?
1: Well, honestly, um, I'm I'm not really in a creative project at the moment. I mean, I finished a record before uh, the hammer fell, you know, and the city fathers shut us down. I was really just kind of mentally prepared to go out there and, I don't know, you know, bring it to the people, do the hand-to-hand combat. We had a lot of gigs, and, uh, you know, of course, that all just kind of Floated away, and and my poor agents, you know, they've rescheduled it, and then they've rescheduled the rescheduled, and and you know, they all they all kind of reacted initially like, oh, Chuck, I'm good in a crisis, don't worry, you know, I'm gonna go out, and then eventually people just kind of get beaten down. But I mean, I'm helping out on a documentary right now about the 20th anniversary of the Hardly Strictly uh, Bluegrass Festival. But honestly, in terms of writing, um, for me. Uh, writing is thinking, you know, and so I'm just doing a lot of observing. I mean, there's a lot to read. Um, and, um, I got a book club going with a couple of friends and, and really, what yeah, books? we're reading a Mary Carr book. I said, we might as well jump into it. And she's the, you know, the gold standard of memoirs and, uh, you might appreciate it. It's a very Texas, Texas centric book. And so, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot and just kind of staring out the window, and there's just a lot to observe. And there's, I'm listening, and, and you know, I'm, man, I mean, uh, I can't really say that I'm knee deep in a project, or do I even want to be?
0: <laughs> I know, right? It's, uh, it's uh, so many people I've talked to have been unable to really, you know, create anything in the midst of all of this. It's just, it's it's such a trauma, right? It's just such a giant global trauma. I mean, how do you make art? And I guess a lot of great art has been made. Um, God, I wonder, I wonder what's going to come out of this. Do you have any prediction? I mean, I don't know if you're going to predict things. I mean, I mean,
1: I think that's possible. I mean, it stands to reason that there'll be a creative explosion on the other end of this. A lot of screenplays, a lot of books, a lot of records, a lot of you know, um, but who knows? Uh, there's lots of other stuff to do. I mean, even in the best of times, I don't really like to hear myself talk about... <laughs> even in the best of times, I it kind of weirds me out, Rhett, to hear myself talk about the process. Uh, when people explain songwriting, it kind of weirds me out. Uh, you know, but I, I mean, my, I'll do my best. You know, it's like you get an idea... You play around with it. You play around with it some more. Uh, you hear something you might like. It starts to connect with something else. Uh, the music pushes it along, and maybe if you make a demo and, uh, you know, you want to listen to it back, you know you might be on to something. But but I've, you know, these podcasts and stuff, I mean, because I knew that you and I were going to get together, and I knew that, you know, you're, you're like, uh, way off into the process and, I started listening to some of these interviews with songwriters, and I got to tell you, man, some of these older Nashville dudes talking about doing the work, and I was like, man, uh, make making it sound like they fought in the fucking Civil War or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, it's just gross. You know, it's like, don't do it <laughs> it's so hard. It's so noble. It's a noble thing to do, and it's like, okay, you know. That's hilarious. That makes me so
0: happy to hear you describe it like that, because that's my experience with songwriting, too. It's like I do it because I I love it. It feels good. It helps me not go fucking crazy. But I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not like I I, I, I mean, I do think there's a craft to it, I guess. But it's not like it's only that if it wasn't magic, I wouldn't fucking like it. But I love the way you describe it just
1: then well you know i talked I, i've written a lot with dan Penn, of course you know dan wrote the soul 60s soul standards do right man do right woman uh, i'm your puppet cry like a baby tears me up you know and um he explained you know we've written together and he said you know chuck uh i probably wouldn't have written song one if it wasn't for those big speakers you know he in his heart he's kind of an engineer he engineered i'm your puppet you know and and I even asked him, I said, God, when that snare comes in on I'm Your Puppet, I said, it's really distorted. He, he almost got a little defensive. Well, I don't think it's distorted. I, I mean, uh, I just think it sounds good. I said, well, yeah, that's, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, kind of hilarious. I mean, uh, I, I can see your boy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> ah, ah. Hey, Ma- hey, Max,
0: I'm in the middle of an interview. What's up?
1: Hey, uh, Mom said she'd be home at two to take me to Brady's. But mom's never coming home. I was gonna see if you were able to take me away to do an interview, but you can, so it's
0: fine. Um, as soon as I'm done, I'll come find you. I love you. Bye. Yeah, That's what homeschooling's all about, man. He's 16 years old, and he's such a giant man. He's he's a good he's a good kid. Um,
1: yeah. Well, it's anyway, funny. anyway, Dan Penn said that the reason he wrote songs was because if he wrote a song good enough to make a demo or a recording, Rick Hall would give him the keys to the studio. <laughs> and that was where the magic was for dan you know uh so everybody's got their own thing you know what about you i mean when you when you started was there
0: something that drew you in was it always music or was it because i know like you've been a part of a lot of really cool scenes you know um punk rock and San Francisco and like you was it strictly music or was it like lifestyle? Was there an epiphany moment for you? I'm wondering kind of where it started.
1: Uh, well, that's, you know, I don't ever recall like being a child and have, and someone saying, Oh, Charles, you know, he's so talented. He's so creative. <laughs> I I really don't recall anything like that. My, my sister brought home a guitar from CYO camp and, and, All the kids in my neighborhood play guitar. I grew up in Orange County, and I always tell people, I go, look, it's the kind of place where if you shook an orange tree, five guitar players would fall out, you know. (laughs) So it was always there. It was always in the air. I did not consider it a vocation. I didn't think it was something you could do. I have had – definitely have had those sort of – spiritual moments like when I was with my mother, you know I, don't know, I was about seven years old and I was eating graham crackers and my mother was ironing my dad's shirts and with that spray and that <laughs> starch and I was sitting on the living room floor and the TV was on and we were watching the Dinah Shore show and Iggy Pop came on, you know, and um, he talked to Dinah Shore, Dinah Shore and he said, she said, oh, Jim, um, um, I, I hear you hurt yourself on stage. And he said, uh, I hurt other people too. And then he went and sang this song with the Sales Brothers and Bowie was playing keyboards and Bowie had like a newspaper boy hat on. And you can see it on YouTube, but I remember it exactly. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I got to do, but when I grow up, I want to hang out with guys like that. And I didn't think of it as like, I want to be a a lead guitarist or I want to be a singer or a front man. I I would have been happy to have been a roadie or something, you know. I just didn't know what it was, but but it spoke to me, you know. And that's really how it started. And, you know, the punk rock scene here in San Francisco was a little bit unlike the other scenes. And then most of it came out of the Art Institute. So... You know, the Avengers and Crime and the Sleepers and and Tuxedo Moon and these bands, they all had great aesthetics, great posters. They had a great look. They had a great presentation on stage. And being able to play, that that was just secondary, you know. Whereas, like, bands in the East Bay that I also was completely influenced by, like the Rubenews and Jonathan Richmond. And uh, bands like that, you know, oftentimes they had horn sections and things because they all came out of Berkeley High, which had a really uh, well-known music program, you know. So all of those things kind of added up to, you know, being in bands when I was like 16 and stuff. But, like, I didn't really think of it as songwriting. I just thought we were making stuff up, you know. And, and if the band wasn't tight or, you know, we had a girl drummer, she was, she was very naive. She had just started, I used to stay behind at practice and I'd get behind those drums and be like, what the, what the hell's going on? Why isn't this working? You know? So I taught myself to play drums and I taught myself to play. I just wanted, I just wanted to be in a band. And I I saw these bands like, you know, I even saw the and Groovies very early on. Um, I I saw the and Groovies when I was probably 16. I saw them at a place called the Temple Beautiful. Uh, there was a bunch of bands that played that night. The mentors came out. They were wearing like executioner hoods. They made, oh. me, they made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I, I, I saw a band, I saw a wall of voodoo and Rhett. They did not have a record out, you know? Wow. But they came out on stage, and um, Stan was in like a long coat, you know, like he kind of looked like Jimmy Cagney or something. He, radio, radio. And the the band was literally like a guy, I remember all this, uh, he had like a Jaguar into a Fender reverb tank, and he was doing that kind of like, you know, Ennio Morricone thing, you know, yes. big note, like Dwayne Eddy sort of thing, and they had, for the drums, they had a, like a home organ, like a, you know. And every once in a while, to emphasize a downbeat, you know, the drummer would just hit a trash can lid like, <laughs> and then radio, and it was just like mind blowing, you know. Uh, and then at about, there were there were a couple other bands that played. I have the poster right here on the wall. Um, the Go Go's were supposed to be there. They had canceled, um, but at about two in the morning, a band called the Flame and Groovies came on stage. And they came out, and they were wearing, like, Carnaby Street, you know, tailored suits um, with, um, you know, like, hats and, 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 and Beetle boots. And they were wearing, like, 12-string guitars, like, up really high, you know. And uh, all the punk rockers, like, half the punk rockers there, there were probably about 150 people there, took one look at those guys and just split. You know? <laughs> But I stayed there, and I was, like, on the stage just kind of looking up, you know. And I always tell people, I I looked at the guitar player, and he was looking back at me, looking at him, looking at me, looking at him. And I think some energy was transferred, and I swear to God, Rhett, how was I to know that 10 years later I would be over at that very same guitar player's apartment buying Coke? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, those are the kind of dreams you know <laughs> they can come true. Oh my God, that's so funny. so it's what you're
0: describing is so like collaborative and it's so scene based and you know it's interactive and it's like you you were drawn into this world of people, right, like these characters and friends, and i I just wonder. Like so much, so many, when people think of art, they think of it as being the solitary thing that we you know, that people, you know, sit in a closet and write a, compose a song or whatever. But your experience was like this very collaborative thing, right?
1: I mean, is that how you think of art? Yeah. I mean, I didn't think of it. I didn't get into playing music, you know, to be by myself in my room, you know? Um, And, and in fact, I mean, I've, they tell me I made 15 solo records. I haven't counted them, but I'm gonna to have to take their word for it. But it's really only the last few years that I've uh, become comfortable with playing solo, and I really do enjoy it now. But I feel like I have enough of the right kinds of songs, and I, you know, and I'm sober. I've been sober for like 20 years now, and I'm finally at a place where it's like I'm not like two songs into the set, and I'm like I'm fucking bored. I can't imagine how fucking bored they are, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But I finally made peace with it, and, I, and I've gotten to a place where I really enjoy it, you know. And uh, But another thing you mentioned earlier about collaboration, um, another part of my story that I've only recently started to think about is that when I was in high school, I got this gig playing for this guy, Barry Sobel, and he was a comedian. So this would have been like early 80s, and we played – everywhere we played you know cobs we played uh up in lake tahoe at caesar's tahoe on the big stage we played tons of gigs and you know it was the time of robin williams was still around and bobby slayton and i remember the night that somebody uh, was standing in front of this we were on a in front of a club called the holy city zoo out here on clement street and um it held about 25 people or something and this guy says uh Hey, he says, guys, I got to split. I got to go pick this guy up at the airport. Uh, he's going to stay on my couch for a while. And so he said, all right. So we were standing there, you know, out on the sidewalk. And, um, and then about an hour, that's the way it was back then. It took him about an hour to go to the airport and pick somebody up and bring him back. You know, <laughs> was like, you know there, were, there were no cars back then. And, and that guy was Bobcat Goldthwait. And he, and he goes, yeah, this guy's from Boston. And he's going to stay on my couch for a while. And so Bobcat Goldthwait went in and he goes, hey, you want to do uh, like five or ten? And he says, yeah, I guess so. So he goes up and does like five or ten minutes. And I'm like, what the hell did I just see? You know, and so I was really exposed to so much comedy. Paul Poundstone, Bobby Slayton, Michael Pritchard, um, of course, uh, Dana Carvey. Uh, I saw him doing the church lady and kind of I remember him developing that, and I had no I was so young and inexperienced that I had no idea that when they just took something and tweaked it a little bit their five minutes that they would go up and tweak something, and that to them was an entire leap of faith, like you know i'm gonna go out on a limb and it's a leap of faith to get up there and tweak this thing and see if I still get the laughs, you know. I had no idea about the process, you know. I mean, it's only really later that um, that it started to occur to me, you know, what was going on in their heads, you know. And I saw Barry do it a lot too. And he ended up, Barry. He ended up doing Carson twice. He got invited over to the Holy Couch. Wow! And um, he ended up as a writer at SNL for a while, and uh, he's still out there, still certifiably bat fucking clown shit crazy <laughs> uh, but I saw so much stuff uh, when I played with him he did a little musical thing and so you know we would do a couple songs and I would just stand around and wait for that you know but I would watch all this stuff go on and uh, so that, that also I think had an, uh, had an effect on me in terms of um, the work I love the
0: interaction between music and comedy. And I feel like it's like I did a lot of years down at Largo in Hollywood, where there was a bunch of comedians that would hang out with the musicians all the time. And there was so much overlap. And so to this day, I, I get to be friends with a lot of comics. But um, it seems so terrifying, right? Uh, you and I walk up and we have songs and guitars and we know what we're going to do. The comedian walks up. And I just see them being like freaking naked and walking out on stage and just opening their mouths and hoping to God that something funny comes out. But maybe to them, it's like they've got a guitar in their mind of this bit they're going to do or whatever. But it's it's yeah, weird, it's, right?
1: It's become an art form that people have really come to. There's a, I don't know, we are, I feel like we're in the fifth wave of it. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting and, and it's it's evolved and. Uh, I think one of the things that I, that I've gotten from that is, um, I talked to Loudon Wainwright about this. I said, you know, Loudon, you were talking about, in the 70s, you were talking about hitting your kids in songs and slapping your girlfriends in the back of a cab and, and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, you know, they, we all do it. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, I said, uh, it's interesting because you were sort of out in front of that where where so much of what we take for granted today between, you know, uh c k Lewis or Mark Marin, or you know we don't have as much time for stuff that isn't personal yeah and and isn't honest on someone we're just kind of bored with it, you know I mean um so Loudon was really out in front of all that stuff, and I think that that that's probably an in, you know maybe an influence that people have had hopefully it influences songwriters too, because we just don't have as much patience for so many of the known cliches and songwriting, you know, and and I get excited when I listen to Loudon Wainwright, you know, because I get excited because he takes songs where no man has gone, where no song, he goes where no songwriter has gone. And in terms of going there, um, most people I find, uh, don't want to go there, you know? And so it's fun when, and it's fun when people do, and it's very refreshing. And so I think that's something about, um, Comedy that, that they may be pretty far out in front of songwriters, you know. And also songwriters, you know, sadly, um, there's this thing where to be a songwriter, you play acoustic guitar and um, there's a certain format that's kind of accepted, whereas I see guys like Jinx Lennon or somebody uh, over there in Ireland and he's got a drum machine and he kind of shouts his way through the songs, but they have hooks. And there are so many ways to present yourself. You know, um, my wife and I, we just did something for Adam from Low Cut Connie. We, we did an 80s cover, and we did a cover of the Human League's Don't You Want Me? And I'm like, I'm like, this song's as good as that entire Star, uh, Star is Born movie, basically. <laughs> it's all it's, well, the songs better than any songs in that movie. And uh, secondly, it's, it, it really encapsulates the whole thing. And... As an added bonus, when that song was on the radio, I had never heard anybody on the radio that couldn't sing. Yeah. (laughs) I'd only heard, like, Lori Brannigan and people that, you know, I'm singing. I'm going to kick your ass with my, you know. And and (laughs) so so when you hear that verse, Og was looking as a, and it's kind of flat, you know, it's like you're watching a Cassavetes movie for the first time or something. So good. It's really flat and kind of uh, uh, believable, you know? So sometimes that stuff's just hiding in plain sight, but people are, you know, uh, they got their head up some finger picking, you know, I don't know, (laughs) sensitive bullshit (laughs) when some of the best songs are hiding right there in plain sight. Um, boy, I loved a minute ago, you were
0: describing being on stage a couple of songs into your set, thinking like, oh, my God, I'm bored. I can't. Um, I wish sometimes people knew what was going on inside of artists head or people, you know, singer, songwriter, uh, you know, guys like us, um, you know, because it's a grocery list or it's just some random thought that has nothing to do with the moment that you're in. Um so I wonder about the internal stuff with you. Like, t- to me, you seem like somebody that's always, like, kind of, you know, self-confident. You sort of know what you do. You, you, th- there's not a lot of second-guessing. I wonder, though, if you do run up against, like, internally generated obstacles, you know, uh, self-doubt.
1: Well, how do you start with inter- in IGOs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how
0: do you deal with that? Do you have that? Is this something that you encounter?
1: Well, um, yeah, concentration is really a fatiguing, Um, you know, and that that also goes for reading and um, uh, just being – it's it's very difficult to be in the moment in life, I think. Uh, And uh, I have to remind myself to be in the moment, you know. I mean, um, and that goes for – there's no different on stage. Of course, I'm looking out at the audience and I'm thinking like, Look at this fucking guy. Or, <laughs> I'm like, uh, why did I say that to the sound? I mean, I know I said that in the sound check, but I mean, why did I say that? You know, or, you know, or, yeah, so I have an internal dialogue going on and, and I have to, uh, yeah, I try to uh, avoid that. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's there, you know, if you let it.
0: But even just when you're alone and you're you know writing songs or you're trying to come up with what's the next thing, I mean, fifteen Chuck Prophet records—that's a lot of fucking records. That's a lot of songs. You know, do you do you run up against you know negative inner voices that you have to like deal with, shut down, work yeah, past? I'll,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely. I I rarely finish stuff. You know, my last record, I had to drag somebody in the room to help me wrestle them all to the ground. You know. Um. Uh. When I knew you were going to ask me, like, what are you working on now? You know, so I thought about that. And if if it wasn't for this pandemic and the fact that my mom's in her 80s and I want to visit her. So I've got to really, you know, I've got to really like I got to walk. I got to like watch my step. I got to wear a mask, you know, but I haven't been able to go to my office. So I've been locked out of my office. I was able to go down there, like pick up a microphone and. My wife's like, oh, you're not taking the elevator, are you? I said, no, no, no. I took the, I took the stairs, you know. Um, so I was able to do that. But but right now, I would probably be uh, at my space, my workspace, my office, and um, with a bunch of pe- pieces of paper on the floor, and I might be like going through looking for some kind of unfinished thing that I – you know, can't remember why I set it down and I'd pick it back up and play with it. And that would be a complete happy place for me. You know, I mean, no pressure. I I mean, I've got a new record out. I'm ready to go out and play. But that would be a happy place for me. I just kind of, you know, I'd go through the place, maybe make some piles of the papers, you know. <laughs> Good, medium, you know, definitely need to be revisited box, you know. And I have some, some of those boxes. And that would be real fun for me. So, uh Yeah, there are times when I am wrestling with something and then I just put it down like, I don't know, I lose interest or, you know, whatever, you know.
0: Um, do you find when you've got a new record in the can about to come out, does that like is that tricky for you having to navigate the, the impatience or wondering what the how the world's going to respond to it? Or or does the punk rocker and you just say like who gives a crap? This is oh I give a crap
1: I give okay. lots of craps. yeah very <laughs> much. I mean I would like to you know uh, remaster it I would like to remix something I would like to re- you know I would like to resequence it but honestly when it finally gets to that place where I know that I can't change anything and I do have to disengage you know um, but that but up until then you know anything's game
0: but the reviews aren't something you lose sleep over or the the public reaction or whatever
1: so i'm so desperate for approval man i'm so (laughs) i'm so so like i'm so needy and hungry you know i never for you know some i never forget a good review you know that's so funny it's
0: i mean i feel the same way but like this deep into our career you would think that like the hunger would have been beaten out of us or, you know, it's
1: not the same. I mean, it's not quite the same. I mean, um, because, um, I don't put as much stock in, I mean, there are writers that I read and that I kind of understand their values and I, and I dig where they come from. There are certain journalists that, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it would be nice to, to get a nod from them. There's other people, you know, journalism has taken such a, beating in the last years that there really, uh, is no journalism, you know? And so yeah. if there's some, you know, if somebody in a weekly and, you know, Boston says that they don't like the snare sound or something like, like, you know, it would be hard to imagine how little I fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, really. And, and, and somebody that really hasn't, you know, um, yeah whatever you know i mean um take okay. a lot of, it takes a lot of listening to to develop a kind of a critical ear for things and it takes a lot of um you know it it, it takes some doing to get to that place um so I know this is a bit of a hackneyed question but
0: I find that so much good stuff comes out of it I'm going to ask you regardless. Um if you were to meet a version of yourself 21 year old but working in today's world
1: what advice would you give yourself? I mean um listen to your guts, you know? I mean and you know also uh it's okay to compromise. You know, I've been in bands before, you know? I mean I was in a band called Green on Red and um Great band. later uh in the last few years I've had the opportunity to hang out a little bit with the fellows in REM and you know uh um Mills and Peter and Stipe and uh and and seeing those guys together I see this kind of respect and warmth that they have towards each other and um and, and Stipe said that, that he really um, credits a lot of their longevity with the fact that they were able to compromise, you know, and they were able to get along. And yeah, you know, somebody might say, I don't want to go out for six months, somebody might say, oh, I was thinking more like two months, oh, let's call it four months, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> they were able to do that, and I think as a group, you know, it's really important, um, to choose your battles and learn to compromise, and, and that's okay, you know, and and you know. There's a certain promoter that I, that I slapped, and, and I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I don't know why. I don't know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what was going through my head or why I got so worked up. So I would probably tell my younger self, hey, bro, you know, don't get so worked up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I love all this ultimately, stuff. Ultimately, as far as the crystal ball, like looking into the future, uh, yeah, what good, what, what good would it have done?
0: Well, man, I love talking to you. I just, I think you, I, I think you are such a font of wisdom. And uh, I think the new record is so cool. Hey, what's that
1: photo on the cover of it? That's a Jim Goldberg photo. I was visiting a friend and it was on his wall. And I just walked by. I, there, there's a song on, on my new record called Willy and Nilly. And I said, well, that's kind of cosmic because that's Willie and Nilly. You know, that's what they look like in my mind. Yeah. And he goes, well, that's my friend Jim Goldberg. And so I contacted the photographer and uh, I was able to get it, you know. So the thing I love about the record and the thing I also love about my William Eggleston albums is that um, in, the vinyl, in, the, in the vinyl era, I tell people, look, you know, if you got it together enough to buy the first Velvet Underground record, guess what? Not only do you have a great record, but you have basically you have a Warhol yeah (laughs) you own a warhol so it's for me albums are also affordable art yeah and um so i'm real proud of that cover you know i really love the photograph and um and then i put a picture of my mom and dad on the back oh so yeah it's super evocative it's really great well congrats chuck thanks for being on wheels off Hey, it's been a pleasure, Rhett, and uh, you know, um, thanks for letting me spout off. I've been holed up. If I offended anybody, I apologize, but this is what happens when you've been in the bunker this long. (laughs) It's it's all going to come out. I'm going to burn it all down. Oh,
0: man. Well, I hope I get to see you soon. Take care, my friend.
1: Be safe out there.
0: Adios. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.